Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. Today, I'm going to be talking about how to get and keep your dog's attention and focus in exciting places away from your house. So you might be struggling, your dog might be highly interested in stuff around you, maybe in scent, maybe in any kind of movement that's happening, and you may be tearing your hair out. So I am going to be talking a little bit about that scenario. And this is a scenario that I see quite often for some reason with spaniels. So anyway, I'll be back in one second after this stunning intro music. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. So I should say that this subject has been inspired by an email which I received from Iris. Iris has a seven and a half month old field bred golden retriever called Philly and is having some problems with environmental distractions, let's say. So I'll read you a couple of paragraphs. You sent me quite a long email. So I'm going to read you a few paragraphs of what she is facing in case it rings any bells and in case anyone else can sort of empathize with this situation. So Iris says, I have a question about introducing new environments to an adolescent dog while living in a city. Philly is quickly overstimulated, reaching a point at which she is unable to respond to me. Natural environments in particular have this effect on her. This has become worse since adolescence. It now impedes the generalization of her retrieving and casting exercises to outside the house. Both old and new fields trigger zoomies, after which she seems tired, and then she finds it hard to focus on me. In addition, we would love to exercise her in natural environments, but if we want to keep her under threshold in a new area, we can only take her out loose leash walking for about five to ten minutes. Some areas, even after having been there for three to five times, still make her go crazy. Should we keep exposing her daily to natural environments to socialize or habituate her, or lower the frequency until the most intense part of adolescence is over? Is it okay to sometimes let her go over threshold, or should we always try to maintain her ability to respond to us? Do you think the zoomies are just something that she has to get out of her system before she's able to train and focus on me, or should I start again with short sessions close to me to maintain focus and gradually increase distance and time while trying to stay under threshold? So I think I think that's probably a good point to stop with the email. There is a lot more detail but I think it's just basically saying the same thing, but with more detail. So what should we say about this? There's lots to say about this because this is a very common problem that I see frequently. So I have worked with people who have literally been unable to leave their house or garden with their dog 
and have their dog pay any attention to them whatsoever. So the idea of being able to train that dog becomes pretty impossible, really. And people then end up in this sort of vicious circle whereby the dog isn't getting enough exercise or mental stimulation, so physical or mental exercise, and they are sort of going a bit stir-crazy, so that when they are then finally taken off the property somewhere else, it's just way too exciting compared to what they're used to, and it pushes them into massive over-arousal, and they can concentrate even less. So I know that sometimes there are... I mean, there are some behaviorists because I often work with these people and they tell me that previous behaviorists have told them not to take their dog out of the house and to just work on scent work and things in the house, which is fair enough, but that's not going to fix the problem because if you never take your dog into these environments or even off your property, you're not ever going to be able to help the dog manage to contain their feelings in those environments. So... It's kind of interesting, this one. I think that you definitely have to take your dog into these environments, but you need to you need to be doing very structured things with your dog in these environments to teach them how to maintain that level of contact with you, despite all the environmental distractions. So we can talk about some of those things and what some of those things are, but I think a general sort of framework for this is going to be useful I'm going to read you a little bit from my book that I'm writing at the moment, which is the sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training, because I think it's going to provide us with that framework. So let me find the relevant bit of the book. Okay, here we go. The relevant bit of the book is called Structure, Frameworks and Patterns, Ways to Help a Dog to Hold Their Mind Together. We often talk about over-aroused dogs losing their minds, coming apart or falling to pieces. The idea of a mind being lost or in pieces suggests a fracturing or a splintering. If the dog were a person, we might say things like pull yourself together or get a grip. In other words, structure yourself or hold on to something. Thinking, learning and cognition are structure. A dog in their thinking brain is an operant dog performing learned behaviours to earn reinforcers or avoid punishers. There's logic, order, and coherence at work here. So this structure, which the thinking brain makes of the world, is the opposite of a dog which is losing their mind, coming apart, and falling to pieces. So when we are confronted with a dog which can't learn because they're over-aroused and they've come apart, we're witnessing a mind which has lost the ability to pull itself together. So this is why the most effective approaches which dog trainers have come up with to help dogs which are falling to pieces in various ways involve providing these dogs with the structure which their minds temporarily lack, engaging dogs with the structure so they participate in it and co-create its continuation with their trainer. This co-created structure over time enables dogs to structure themselves, to pull themselves together. Now, if this sounds a bit abstract, here are some examples which might ring bells. We see this co-created structure occurring in pattern games from Leslie McDevitt. Pattern games possess a high degree of reassuring predictability for the dog. Pattern games weave a framework consisting of a sequence of predictable events which the dog is invited to participate in. Many pattern games don't allow much downtime or empty space, wherein the dog could potentially make poor choices. A dog is instead held securely within highly structured, rapid-fire training. We can see this co-created structure occurring in platform training or mat work and in the use of stillness which again comes from Leslie's work and also Diddy's Fanzi's work. Since these ideas all offer dogs something to stick their physical selves to in the external world. So this is a physical an anchor point, which literally enables them to get a grip, like a platform, for example. If the dog's physical self is held together by a location, 
they can use that anchor point to put their mind back together inside. And by the way, if anyone is listening to this and they're thinking about human psychology and human psychotherapy, you are thinking along the right lines there. So we can also see this co-created structure in the provision of alternative points of focus, such as the dog's mind being preoccupied by the exploration of environmental reinforcers like scent, as in Grisha Stewart's bat, or busy with other reinforcers like play, Amy Cook's playway, or absorbed in offered durational engagement training from Sharon Carroll, or through the use of treat scatters or find it to provide the dog with a deeply absorbing task that they can focus on. Providing an alternative focus is to provide another kind of anchor or orientation point for the dog's mind out in the world. Let's stop thinking about behavior. Let's start thinking about minds. An orientation point is a single spot which enables someone who is lost to relocate themselves. To focus is, after all, to pull the mind together in order to concentrate on a single stimulus. It's the opposite of falling to pieces, of losing your mind. So with all these approaches, once we've provided a framework that the dog can use to pull themselves together, it becomes possible to weave back into the structure we've co-created, the original source of the over-arousal, enabling the dog to take in the over-arousing stimuli in manageable detoxified doses that can be integrated back into the structure. In this way, the dog sees the stimulus and turns back to play, or turns back to offered durational engagement, or turns back to sniffing, or continues the pattern game. So even the over-arousing stimulus now falls within the confines of the structure that we've offered to the dog. It no longer causes them to lose their mind. We are now included in the dog's interaction with the stimuli, and we have a thinking and operant dog again. So these highly successful approaches to working with dogs which have lost their minds all involve offering the dog a structure or framework to hold that mind together until they are able to gradually resume holding it together for themselves. Viewed in this way, it might be possible to see the commonalities beyond the differences in these approaches. So that's what I'm going to read. It's a little section from my book. So that's the sequel to Force Free Gondol Training, which is not out yet because there's a section I haven't written yet. Um, <laughs> but hopefully that is helping people to think along the right lines for how to manage this. So generally, you need to find a structure which you can provide for your dog through, well, I've listed lots of different ideas there. Any of those ideas that happen to work for your dog, be it a physical platform or place or spot for them to stick themselves to, be it a a tightly structured training pattern, which enables them to stick them to sort of weave a structure together in their minds to provide sort of coherent way to hold themselves together. So they don't lose that mind, doesn't fragment into lots of little bits and end up on the ceiling. So I think, you know, what that structure is going to be is going to differ for different dogs, but experiment a little bit, see what works best for you and your dog. And you might find that different things work in different locations or different environments or under different contexts. So that's your first thing. In terms of zoomies and should you let your dog do zoomies, will you, this is to respond to Iris, well you did say Iris that after doing zoomies your dog finds it hard to focus on you. So I think that is your answer there. If if zoomies and high arousal and brain on the ceiling through overexcitement results in a dog which can't focus and it doesn't help you achieve what you know that that focused concentrated mind at the end of it, then it's counterproductive to your ends. So I think maybe no zoomies and <laughs> holding the leash, you know, sometimes you get dogs which try to do zoomies even on a relatively short leash or long line. So holding the leash short enough that zoomies are just not possible. You may find that the whole platform idea is useful for your dog because 
that's going to help them sort of voluntarily stick themselves to something and it's going to keep them still and prevent zoomies in a way that you know they are they are holding themselves together rather than you just holding onto the leash and you holding them together so it's always always better if the dog can do that for themselves and then over time as the dog gains the ability to do this you'll be able to dispense with the platform more and more you might want to check out denise fancy's work with her dogs who also experienced over arousal issues so that might give you some ideas there's lots of great videos that denise has from earlier work so check that out even though the dogs are not gun dogs it's still going to be really really useful so please don't be put off i mean the other thing i wanted to say is all of these things that i've listed here have have you know pretty much nothing to do with gun dog training let's just say these are stuff from the field of reactivity so behavioral problems and dog aggression and that sort of thing as it were but over arousal is over arousal and there's over arousal involved in aggression it's quite hard to think of aggression which doesn't involve over arousal even if a dog just quickly snaps and then resumes their normal state of being in that moment when they quickly snapped we could say that they were over aroused so although the over arousal may have only lasted two seconds they were over aroused for two seconds so i think i think it's hard to separate those two things which is part of the reason why all of this stuff in the field of reactivity is so useful for working with over arousal and overstimulation in gun dogs even if you're not seeing any reactivity or just seeing the reacti- the over arousal side of things it's still really really helpful so okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor but i don't have a sponsor so instead i'm going to play you a tune on my trusty acme 212 Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gun Dog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. If you think about it, Gun dogs have been bred for generations to be working dogs and and the work that they've been bred to do is going to necessarily put them into a state of at least arousal, if not over arousal. So they would be pretty rubbish, frankly, as a working dog if they didn't get excited, aroused at the prospect of hunting and finding game if um, they're, they're a breed which hunts before the shot or retrieving if they're retrievers. So if they're not very interested in the work that they're bred to do, or that doesn't excite them or enthuse them or motivate them or result in over arousal sometimes, then they're probably a bit of a dud. So 
that's why we get so many dogs from working lines with these issues. So if you want to train the dog to be a working dog, you need to be equipped to deal with high arousal and sometimes over arousal. You can train behaviors in low arousal states. So you mentioned there, Iris, training your dog at home and, you know, doing the three-handed casting in the house and stuff, but having problems taking that out to the field. So for sure, you can train things in the house in a, in a, in a you know, a low arousal environment for that dog and away from distracting stuff. But at some point, you're going to have to take the dog out to the field. And so you can't permanently stay in your house. A gun dog which permanently lives in your house or even in your garden is not going to be much use as a gun dog. And they're not going to have a great life as a dog either. So we have to get this stuff working away from the house. Avoiding conditions that result in over arousal is only going to help you to a certain point, meaning getting the behavior off the ground in the first place. So the solution isn't to avoid arousal because we need it, but it's to help the dog learn how to remain in their thinking mind whilst they are starting to feel aroused, if that makes sense, over aroused. So you might not consider your over aroused and excited gun dog to be displaying reactivity, by the way, because people think that reactivity relates only to aggression or, or fear, really. But if you think about it, the word reactivity just describes a sort of a propensity to display a reaction, as it were. And what that reaction is, it can vary. So a lot of the behavior that, you know, that we're talking about here is is directly um, something that's something that's going to be useful if you apply these issues, these um, solutions from reactivity. That's the right word. Um, from reactivity to, and even if your dog hasn't reached the point of barking and lunging from over arousal. So sometimes dogs will get really frustrated because they're restrained on the leash and you might start to see what some people would term reactivity from your dog because they're frustrated and the leash is preventing them from reaching what they want to reach. And so you might start to see barking and lunging in that situation. But even if your dog hasn't reached that point, if you're experiencing any problems that are the result of over arousal, then you are in similar territory to that of reactivity. So I think I might have said that enough now. Um, <laughs> um the other thing that, that reactive dogs and over-aroused gun dogs have in common, by the way, is is it's about stuff in the environment. So, you know, if you think about it for reactive dogs, probably the most common things that reactive dogs react to is the appearance of strange people or other dogs. Those are going to be the two main things that inspire reactivity for dogs. For gun dogs, it might be, I don't know, the sight of other dogs running retrieves or game falling from the sky that might cause their minds to go, you know, through the roof. So either way, though, there's stuff out there in the environment which causes this emotional state in the dog. So with both reactive dogs and with over-aroused gun dogs, the dog's sort of focus and attention is directed excessively towards that that moving thing. It's usually moving thing in the environment. So the other dog, person, game or retrieve. So in that moment, the dog isn't relating to the handler in a sort of operant training relationship. They're not they're not accessing that stuff in the environment through the handler, through the handler saying, go get the retrieve. Or, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an equivalent in other situations, I can't think of any other equivalents at the moment. But you know what I mean? They're not, they're not accessing the reinforcer in the environment through relating to the handler. They are just obsessed with trying to get it directly. And the handler in these situations is often re- sort of reduced to physically holding onto the dog with the leash. So because the dog's brain 
isn't able to contain their feelings, the handler has to physically restrain the dog. So the goal behind many reactivity protocols is for the handler to sort of weave themselves back into relevance for the dog and to move from this sort of binary of dog and exciting stimulus out there in the environment to a sort of three-way thing where you've got dog and handler and exciting stimulus. There's like three of you in this relationship. And it's clear that this goal is 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 really equally useful for over-aroused gun dogs as well. Um, and the, this concept of weaving the handler into the dog's relationship with the environment is is key in terms of, of what you're doing. And these these various exercises that you can you can do to help your dog get back into their thinking mind, such as I've gone through before. So I think the thing that might give you at least a framework for approaching this stuff. So to talk in a little bit more detail then about things that you could do. So yeah, I would definitely explore the idea of a platform if your dog is physically if the if the way that your dog's over arousal manifests physically, so through zoomies, for example, then a platform is an excellent solution because it's working against that outlet, as it were. It's helping your dog develop the skills that she needs to hold her mind together herself. And you, for example, you might have your platform, your dog's on the platform, they come off the platform, they do a few exercises, they go back onto the platform for a few more seconds and eat lots of treats for being on the platform. They come off the platform, they do another little activity with you, they go back on the platform. So gradually over time, your dog will be able to spend more time off the platform doing stuff with you and they will need less sort of sticking themselves to the platform in between that. So that would be one approach. When you're doing this, you 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 want to keep in mind that you're going to have to massively reduce the criteria of what you're of what you're asking the dog to do compared to what you're doing in the house. So in the house, you you might, for example, be able to do your full three-handed casting thing. But in the field, your dog might not be able to, I don't know, maintain a sit-stay while you walk away in preparation to cast them anywhere, for example. So you've got to massively, massively reduce the criteria and <clears throat> maybe get it get the idea in your head that you're not simply generalizing this whole thing to a new place. You are you're going to have to meet the dog where they're at. And if the dog is somewhere where they can't maintain a sit-stay while you walk away, then that's your goal. So you have to split the goal to be something that you can reasonably achieve with the dog. And by the way, this is going to make you feel better as well, because people feel a bit rubbish if they come away from a training session and they feel like they haven't achieved their goals. You know, if you go into a training session thinking, right, we're going to generalize three-handed casting to the field, boom, boom, let's go. And your dog won't maintain a sit-stay then you're going to finish that training session feeling really rubbish and feeling feeling that you have failed, basically. And if you go into that training session instead thinking, ultimately, I want to generalize through undercasting to the, to, the, to the field, but let's see if my dog can maintain a sit-stay because I know that my dog couldn't do that last time. So that's my goal at the moment. Can we maintain a sit-stay? And over time, maintain that sit stay, you know, build it up from three seconds to five seconds to eight seconds to 10 seconds or, you know, five meters to 10 meters. And so you come away from the training session thinking, great, today we we had a sit stay, which was, I don't know, five meters away for 10 seconds. And that's better than what we did yesterday. So that's going to make you feel successful in comparison. So often the reason that people don't feel successful in training with their dogs is that their goal, their criteria is too high. So 
that's not only bad for the dog because the dog is going to screw up and fail, but you are going to feel bad as a trainer and you are going to lack motivation to train your dog. So it's really important that you pick a realistic, achievable goal for your dog for each session and keep that very small, particularly if you're having focus issues. Be aware that the focus is the the train that is the thing until you've got focus from your dog you can't do any training really so that becomes your goal as it were and the training is this little thing that you're just doing micro doses of here and there until gradually over time you can do more and more training and less and less focus work does that make sense so i hope that makes sense anyway the other thing that i would say is that iris did say that she had done four courses from my website but she didn't say which four courses they were and i have a course called focus and attention which which focuses explicitly on this material so if you're listening to this and you're having trouble with getting a dog's attention away from the house then definitely check out my focus and attention course on my website forcefreegundog.com so that is a super duper course which does exactly what i've just described teaches you how to achieve your dog's focus and then weave in micro doses of training increasing gradually and progressively over time and how to manage different environmental locations and those distractions so so that's important too we're going to talk a bit about the environmental distraction thing in a minute as well but in fact let's do that now so choosing different locations so why you would usually suggest if you have a dog and you are experiencing this is that you pick one location so one field, for example, one one place away from your house where you want to start to work on things and you begin to do this focus work that I've described in that location. And once you feel that you have got your dog's attention long enough that you'll be, you're beginning to be able to do some work with that dog in that location, you want to add in another location. So do the same thing in that new location and then add in another location. So you basically have an ever-increasing repertoire of places that you go to with your dog to work on this stuff. And ultimately, you just get to this situation where it doesn't really matter where you go. You've got the same focus and attention from your dog, pretty much. So when you're in that situation, you're you're home and dry, really. That's it. So gradually, you, do, you don't want to go to lots of different places. So for example, you, with this situation, you don't want to go, if you've got a dog, you're struggling with focus and attention, you don't want to go to a new location every single day of the week because that's just not going to work. You're going to to blow your dog's mind. You're going to constantly struggle with the same thing over and over again. And you're going to feel like you're making no progress with it. So pick one location away from the house. And and when you feel that you're starting to understand how to get your dog's focus in that location, increase to another location. Now, the other problem that can sometimes happen, I mean, Iris said she lived in the city there, but it wasn't clear to me how frequently exactly she was getting out to these places in the country with her dog, fields and places like that. So sometimes what can happen is if a dog doesn't get enough opportunity to be in these kinds of rural environments. When they do, it's just a bit of a wow moment and it blows their brains a little bit. And it's just it's just the contrast of the lack of stimulation and the lack of a rural environment, which is what they're bred to, to be in, compared to you know when they do finally experience it. So if you can, in an ideal world, you'll be regularly getting your dog out to a rural environment every single day, even if it's just at first that one field that you're working in. So that would be that would be something I would say there about where you're training. Now that's not always possible. So obviously do the best with what you have available to you. But I find that does make a big difference. And you know, if you're one of these people who find that they cannot literally cannot, for example, step out of their garden 
um, the first thing I want to ask you is why are you trying to walk your dog directly away from your house? So loose leash walking or heel work. By the way, guys, I prefer to use the term heel work for, for gun dog training, especially if you've got a retriever, because I find it's a bit confusing to have loose leash walking and heel work. And, you know, if you want to have a dog which has an excellent standard of heel work and really understands that a single foot forwards in front of your thigh could result in them being put out of a field trial, for example, if you want to have that sort of standard of heel work, I think it's a bit confusing for the dog to sometimes allow the dog to wander about two feet in front of you. I think it's easier, it's clearer for the dog if there's always a location where they should be at heel. So that's going to be much more relevant for retrievers because that's obviously in their job description than it is for HBRs, versatile dogs, spaniels, who, you know, especially when they're on leash, um, are often going to be two feet in front of you out of heel position. Um, but yeah, so so for retrievers, I would suggest that you just think about it as heel work and that you have a clear place where the dog's expected to be by your side. And that there's not this idea of the dog kind of wandering about freely on a leash as long as they keep it loose. I find that that's kind of muddying the waters a little bit. And by the way, I understand that in North America, heel work is less of a huge task for the retriever. And it may be that what I'm saying here might be less relevant there. So keep that in mind too. So um, I don't know, what was I saying? Yes, heel work. So heel work is, is very difficult. Loose leash walking, by the way, guys, if you're doing that instead, is very difficult. These are difficult things to ask a dog to do. So if you're turning up to an exciting location and you're trying to get your dog to do loose leash walk or heel work, maybe that's too difficult a thing to ask for. Maybe you should just be standing still and working on focus. And that's the other thing important, other important thing to say at this point as well. When you're choosing this location, so I've talked about going to one location I've talked about using platforms, but even if you're not using platforms, you want to be not allowing the dog to access loads of ground. Because if, for example, you're using a 10 meter long line and your dog has a 10 meter radius all around you to sniff about and be a dog, that is giving them lots of environmental reinforcement to go and access instead of working with you. So you probably want to have the leash quite short. You want to take some of those choices off the table for your dog so they are not going to be able to choose to go and do those things that you don't want them to do. Meanwhile, you're going to be marking, clicking and reinforcing any kind of look at you or attention or focus on you. And I like to do this in a way that the dog offers it as well, because I don't want to be pestering or harassing the dog to look at me or focus on me. You know, I want them to be offering this to me. That's that's what I'm going to need in order to be able to train them in these environments. So Often the very basic place to start is just standing still with the dog on a short leash and marking any kind of attention or focus that you get from the dog whatsoever and reinforcing that. And the final thing to say here is about that reinforcement. So if the dog values your reinforcers over the environment, you're you're, you're highly, highly likely to be able to work through this successfully and to be able to make progress. If your dog is more interested in the environment and sniffing about than they are in your treats, then you're probably going to struggle. And this is key to fixing the problem, really. So you've got to work on your dog's food motivation and ensure you've got a food motivated dog. And sure, toys are important as well, but toys are difficult to use in all situations and circumstances. I tend to find that food is just much more flexible. It's just easier to use and to administer. It's quick for the dog to consume you can throw it, you can deliver it directly to the dog's mouth. So it's it's going to be easier to use 
in most for most behaviors that you need to train the dog to do than toys are going to be so whilst toys can be really really important particularly when you're working around game with hunting breeds and you've got if you've got a dog which really values the target or a ball for example that is extremely useful because that sort of prey drive that sort of get the thing can be redirected onto the target or the ball and in those situations toys are often preferable to food for those dogs but if you're just working on focus and attention and i know heel work and sit stays and retrieves and that kind of thing, then food is going to always be my first choice of reinforcer, if I can get the dog to, to agree with me on that one. So to get your dog to to be to value that food, that is a massive thing that we've talked about before on this podcast several times, actually, how to in- improve your dog's food motivation. So have a little think about that as well. And if you think your dog lacks food motivation, maybe look back at the earlier podcast episodes and find the episodes that talk about that as a subject. So I really hope that's given people some ideas and some kind of framework for thinking about these issues. The other thing I want to say is you can check out my first book because um, my first book has some useful um, suggestions really for, for dealing with attention. Um, so make sure you've, you've read that as well. There's kind of the first part, the section one and section two. So the first two parts of my book, um, force free gun dog training talks about lots of things that you can set up to help your dog be successful when you're training. So for example, the section 2.2 called how to stop walking the dog and what's wrong with walking the dog. And, you know, all of that's basically about environmental reinforcers and how environmental reinforcers can act to, well, detrain your dog because they're providing your dog with reinforcement for things, behaviors that you don't want your dog to be um, showing, (laughs) really. So um, have a read of that. Lots there. 2.1 is about food motivation. There's a whole section there on food motivation. So check out the book. There's lots of stuff in the book. You're going to find it really useful. Check out the book. Check out my course, Focus and Attention, on my website, forcefreegundle.com as well. And I hope that this has been useful, especially for you, Iris, if you're listening. Um, And that's all. Hold the line. Hold the line.